My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. lies below the surface of the happiest place on earth, an arcane energy pulsing beneath the ground underneath our feet. To harness it, a device as mundane and rudimentary as a carousel, its hidden purpose to work like a spinning gear, gathering, concentrating, and radiating this telluric current and spinning it across Disneyland in a bubble of wonder, an orb of pure imagination. Could there have been more to the happiness? bright characters, thrilling rides, and classic American amusement, animated possibly by an ancient force, an ancient science resurrected by Walt Disney and the folks at the Stanford Research Institute. Here to discuss this and answer all these questions is author, private investigator, and former FBI agent, Walter Bosley, who's written many books, including the three we will be discussing today. Latitude 33, Keys to the Kingdom, Empire of the Wheel, an investigation of occult espionage and murder, and Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Walter Bosley. So people say, oh, you can't be convicted at all on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence doesn't mean anything. Look, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Many a guilty criminal was, it was, their guilt was discovered and proven through pulling the threads of circumstances. Circumstances matter. Okay. You got a lot of guys, you know, you have criminals who, because an examination of the suspicious circumstances, they ultimately confessed because they realized, oh, shoot, they got me. They know it's just a matter of time before they find, you know, the, the trace evidence or the specific thing that will really, you know, be the smoking gun. So circumstances matter. They are indeed pointers. Now, yes, it's true that in, in, in not every case, circumstances mean guilt, but they're a much better legitimate indicator and in some cases provide the smoking gun, then people realize because the average people just watch movies and TV and, and believe that, you know, everything's said and 
movies and TV must be accurate. No, 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 no. That's, that's not the case at all. So, yes, there is circumstantial evidence around a lot of this, but boy, it, it really results in if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, right? And then it's probably going to be a duck. And the deeper you look into this, some people, you know, the phrase is, well, the, the deeper you look, the more you look, the more you're going to see. Well, it's, it's more like this. The deeper you look at this, the more you actually find. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are yet again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and today's guest is long-awaited, someone who I've been familiar with for a very long time. He has appeared on many podcasts that we look up to on this show, and he's written some really, really compelling books. He's a friend of uh, former guest Richard Spence, and I'm very proud to have Mr. Walter Bosley here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Walter, thank you so much for being here. How are you today? Great, great. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate being here. I'm looking forward to this. Right on. To get into this, you know, I, I should let you know your research synchronistically made its way into my life at a very interesting time. Albeit I was familiar with your interviews, I had heard all this fascinating stuff about the NIMSA, but mm -hmm. I, I hadn't gotten into your, your physical, your written work until about two years ago when I began trying to research my own local area. And I thought, well, there are so many great examples of people who have done this before me, maybe not in my area, but I, by, you know, process of analogy, I can learn from a, a guy like you. And I was stunned to find out how much we were kind of at least thinking in the same realms, right? What I was hoping to find your work delivered and it delivered in a way that is really engaging, you know, especially with this material being nonfiction, being in a realm that's alternative, you bring a, an authorship, you know, it, it. I can tell that you're a novelist, someone who appreciates good fiction because you write your nonfiction 
in a way that's really compatible and really i think well it it's it's smooth so i give it up to you your your work has been really easy to engage with and in particular i started looking into the ley lines here where i live in connecticut and it turns out we there's a sort of commonality between the area where you researched and and what i've found around here and it starts with the 33rd degree of latitude right and and how that intersected with a place that you were very familiar with as a as a kid a place that you you love many people love disneyland right so if you could tell the audience a little bit about how this dawned on you and how 33rd or latitude 33 keys to the kingdom came to be well i'm not surprised that you find some resonance between the things i write about you know that have to do with other places because even more so than latitude 33 there's the world grid and the the grid connects so much connect really everything is connected to the grid so the very same energies and phenomena that i'm finding associated with the mysteries that i delve into where i'm at and in other places that i've looked at doesn't surprise me at all that you're going to find you know the same phenomena where you're at if you know where to look and and that's the just one of the amazing things about all this is if you know where to look where you are you know you could be anywhere and you're going to find something that resonates because of the world grid which latitude and longitude is part of right there th these things are part of this and for me excuse me it was indeed an experience i had at disneyland when i was in high school early 1981, an experience that just kind of stayed with me. And as the years went on, a couple of things popped up that, that really kept that particular day, that particular night at Disneyland, you know, stuck in my head. Cause you know, I grew up going to Disneyland, the, the original park in Anaheim, but it was this one particular trip in, in 81. And over the years, I was also learning about the world grid and telluric current and, and, you know, this strange zone, this belt of latitude that goes around the globe where all these interesting places are associated and, and strange things go on. And it, it actually goes on between 30 and 40 deg degrees north latitude, okay, around the globe. But at 33, there seems to be, you know, some very notable things. I believe the Great Pyramids of Giza are at 33 or, or near enough to it. Disneyland, of course, is at the 33rd degree. The JFK assassination took place like at 32.89, kind of essentially there. And, you know, there's, there's others I'm, I'm forgetting, you know, that, that I'm not even naming. And so I, I, was, I was learning about that. And the one night in... 2006, I'm friends with a guy named Greg Bishop, which I'm sure many of you who, who I'm you know, sure you're familiar with, he has his own show that he's had for years. And I used to sit in with him just about every week for a few years there. And one night we were talking about Disneyland and I mentioned having had a weird experience and we were wondering where Club 33, which is the exclusive members only restaurant in the park. We were wondering where Club 33 got its name. 
And there's a couple of reasons, you know, that are cited. But then we were wondering, is there something more to it? So we pulled up Disneyland. We were on air on his show. We pulled up Disneyland on, I think it was, we Googled it, you know, it comes up on Wikipedia. And we happened to notice the latitude. Was it 33.1881 or is, yeah, I think it was 33.1881. And we're looking at that and we go, hmm, the 33rd degree north, latitude north. Well, there's other weird things associated with, you know, latitude 33 around the globe. And we thought that has to have something to do with it. Well, when I thought of my weird experience there and the little things that had popped up over the years, and then I realized where Disneyland was placed, that just kind of opened the mystery wide for me. And I decided, you know, I, I really got to dive into this. And sure enough, it just cascaded all the stuff that I talk about in the book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. And what my experience was on that night in 1981, I was there with some friends. You have to understand if, if you grew up in Southern California during a certain time, you grew up going to Disneyland. It was just something you did spontaneously. Nowadays, in the last few years, you can't even get into the park without a reservation. But we grew up going spontaneously. Hey, everybody, let's just go to Disneyland. Back then, the freeways weren't crazy. It was a 45-minute drive from you know where I lived, and it was a lot less expensive. So it was one of our many just routine trips to Disneyland, and it was the middle of the week. It was a Wednesday. Now, if you're a fan or reader of John Keel, you'll be aware that he identified Wednesdays, particularly Wednesday nights, okay, as a particular time frame when a lot of strange phenomena and a lot of weird things, you know, high strangeness events occur. And this sure was, it was a Wednesday night and it was in the nine o'clock hour and we were riding the carousel because, you know, that that's what you do. Even if you're a grown up, you know, you ride everything. So we we're on the carousel. It was a little bit after 9 PM and I see this old man standing in the pathway, if you're familiar with your Disneyland geography, standing on the pathway between Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and the Dumbo Ride, okay? That's a pathway that leads back to the Teacup Ride and Tomorrowland, where the Matterhorn is. So he's standing there in that pathway, just a few feet away from the carousel, just watching the carousel go around. And he was a man who I placed around 70 years old, wearing a black suit, white shirt, no tie. He had snow white hair that was close, kind of close crop with a, a trim beard and Caucasian male, white male. And he was just watching the carousel go around. And eventually I noticed, you know, on one of the go arounds, he wasn't there anymore. So I thought, oh, okay, I don't know why I noticed this particular old guy, but I did. So we get off the carousel and we head back on that very path I described back, you know, past the teacups and toward the Matterhorn. And there he was sitting on a bench all by himself. I can't explain it. All I can say, it was one of those moments. I had two friends with me. It was one of those moments where I just felt compelled to walk up to this gentleman and strike up a conversation, you know, and said, Hey, you join yourself in the park this evening. And, and here's the funny thing. I cannot remember his voice. We were speaking to him. I was doing the talking with him and he told us it was the first time he was there. And, you know, you would have thought this was the most amazing 
thing he had ever seen, you know, and and this was in the days where you could get the the passport ticket so you could ride the rides unlimited or most people still got the ticket books. Everybody's heard of the A through E ticket books. Well, he had a ticket book and he was down to just, you know, a few tickets and like a couple of A tickets, which is the small rides. And by that time, it was around 930 and the park was going to be open for about another hour and a half. And he said he wanted to go ride It's a Small World. So we we walked him over to It's a Small World and we rode the ride with him. He sat in the front and it was just, I sat up the front with him. My friends were behind us. And, you know, we all joke about It's a Small World now, right? But he's just in awe of this. And we get off the ride and we head back to where we met him, back by the bench, back towards Fantasyland. And I decide, you know what? We come here all the time. Park's open for, you know, about another hour and a half. I told the guy, here, take my passport ticket. Now, what you did in those days was you would get a pin and you would pin it to your shirt or something so you wouldn't have to keep taking it out of your pocket when you're going into the ride lines. So I unpinned it from my shirt and I pinned it to the lapel of his coat. And he, his eyes got wide and he was incredibly grateful. You'd have thought I'd given him a pot of gold. I'm like, no, 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 we come here all the time. You know, just enjoy yourself. And he thanked me profusely and off he went back into fantasy land, you know, get, getting lost in the, what little crowd there was. And this was another thing about Disneyland in those days, you know, by on a weeknight by seven o'clock, all the families were gone. And you, there, I remember walking around Disneyland, you know, and you wouldn't see another person, you know, for a, a couple of minutes, you know, that's, those were the, uh, the good old days there. So off he goes and, you know, and we go off, we go over to Tomorrowland and, you know, I'm feeling like, oh, okay, I, I did some nice thing for an old guy and that was it. Problem was in the conversation, he had said his name was Alfred. Okay. Alfred. So over the years, it just stayed with me. I just, I, I kept thinking, you know, it would pop up, we'd go to Disneyland again, and I would think of Alfred, the old guy. And I thought there was something weird, something strange about meeting this old guy there. And, and sure enough, it, it was about 11 years later, 1992 is exactly when it was. By that time, I was working for the FBI and I was in Manhattan. And on one of my lunch breaks, I was working in an undercover squad in Midtown Manhattan, working against the Soviet Union agents, KGB. Specifically, I was working against GRU, who were also secretly located in Manhattan. It's just, you know, lots of fun. So on my lunch break, I go down to this bookstore. I don't know if it's there anymore in, in by Columbus Circle, in Columbus Circle near it in Manhattan called the Coliseum Bookstore. And I go into, you know, our favorite section where the books on UFOs and strange things are. And I'm, I'm looking at this book called The Old Straight Track. And it's about ley lines and tolert currents. And it's written in, you know, 1928. And I'm looking at this, I'm going, hmm, tolert currents. Oh, I've read about this. As people, you know, the guys did a study where at the intersection of these ley line things, more UFOs are seen, more ghosts, you know, Bigfoot and all this stuff. This was a, you know, a study that I had seen in 86 or 87, but now it's 92. So I look at, I'm looking at this book and I see the author, Alfred Watkins is the name. Like, hmm, okay. I open it up and I get a shock because they're staring at me and it is a photograph of the author. And it's the man I met at Disneyland in 1981. The problem is he died like in 1935. 
<laughs> but I'm looking at this photo and I'm getting goosebumps and chills and it it's it's weird. Right. Because I'm I'm thinking, no, this this is the man I met at Disneyland. Same white hair and beard, cut the same exact way, trimmed the same exact the face. Th- this was the man that I met at Disneyland in 1981. And so I'm looking at this book and I'm I'm learning that okay, this was the guy that did the first book on ley lines in, in you know, 20th century that, that we know of that kind of introduced a lot of people to the concept. So then, you know, I, I was aware of other studies and other research where people, you know, th- this was actually connected to the world grid in certain ways by, you know, sacred spots, right? The ley lines connect sacred locations, sacred sites, and it has its world grid connection. And so, this was blowing my mind. And so, you know, years pass, I'm learning more from my mentor and weirdness and stuff, having my own weird experiences. And then comes the day in 2006 where Greg Bishop and I are talking about this on his show. And so by that time, when I jump into research on Disneyland, I'm finding things that begin to reveal a picture to me a possibility, which is in the book. I talk about it in the book. There's multiple possibilities I offer that could explain the experience, a very real experience that I had there. One of those possibilities, which happens to be my favorite, is that the real Alfred Watkins in 1927, when he was researching these ley lines that he found in England, hypothetical now, folks, this is, let's have fun with speculation. He steps into an intersection and it's transported across space and time forward to Disneyland 1981. And he is the Alfred I met, which would explain him being in complete awe and, you know, kind of weirded out and freaked out about seeing this Disneyland place. Now, there are problems with that. What kind of money did he have in his pocket enough to, you know, how did he get the ticket book, right? Well, if he had... British pounds in his pocket, you know, I I don't know if you can still do it, but in those days you could go to the bank, Bank of America branch on Main Street and exchange currency. So he could have, you know, exchanged it for U.S. dollars and bought a ticket book. You know, that, that would explain that. But there are other possibilities that are deeply entrenched in Hermetica and, you know, just arcane science. I discovered that SRI the Stanford Research Institute, which many of your listeners are probably familiar with. They were involved with scientific remote viewing. They were involved with all sorts of weird tech for, you know, the U.S. defense industry and on and so forth. They, they, they're they into the weird, you know, science type of stuff. And the guy who was the chief engineer of physical Disneyland was the guy who was there, was the consultant to the Disney brothers on all the viability stuff consulting they did before they built Disneyland. And he was so charmed by the idea of this park that he left SRI and went to work for the Disney's to be the chief engineer of physical Disneyland. So in the book, as you've read, I, through the research of an associate of mine, a gentleman named Sesh Hari, who does geomorphological analyses of topographical maps and, and other charts and stuff, he identified what he is convinced is an intersection of three telluric currents. Now, people call these things ley lines, and technically a ley line and a telluric current are two different things, but colloquially, 
everybody knows what you mean when you say ley lines and tiller currents, but he identified three that intersect in Disneyland. And that intersection is in Fantasyland, the Fantasyland part of Disneyland, and even more to the point, that intersection of the Tulurit Current or the Ley Lines is where the carousel used to be. The carousel used to sit right on top of that intersection. Mm. In 1982, they moved it back several feet when they did a revamp, redesign of Fantasyland. Right. And and even now, the the li- line intersection is punctuated with a sword in the stone, right? Is that correct? Yes. Sort of my King measurements, Arthur? mine and Seshery's measurements and analyses identified that the sword in the stone object there, that's a lot of fun, they have a lot of fun with it, sits where the center of the carousel, where the carousel used to be centered over, where the center of the carousel spun around. And this is somebody's marker that the intersection is here. Wow. And now that is going to be involved, that that will emerge further in a different series of books I do titled Secret Missions, the idea of the swords and stones marking these special spots. But as far as Disneyland is concerned, that's where we think it was marked. One more little juicy tidbit. You recall that I said it was 1992 that I learned about Alfred Watkins, okay? I didn't learn about the man who engineered Disneyland, the SRI guy, until 2006, okay? It just so happened that 1992, the year I walked into that bookstore in Manhattan, was the year that C.V. Wood died. Now, telluric currents and ley lines are often associated with spirit roads, you know, with connection to the, the land of the dead. And so I thought, well, you know, that's too big of a synchronicity to ignore, that the man who designed Disneyland dies the year that, you know, I make the Alfred Watkins connection. So, yeah, the, the, the book is full of the symbology and the synchronicities and the strain, the high strangeness that is in the park and is observable. But what I think that Disneyland is essentially was built to be a psychotronic device to enhance psychically the experience of being in the park. A lot of people want to turn it dark and say, oh, it was evil, black magic. And I discussed that in the book, how ridiculous that is. I, I truly, the, the, through my research and investigation, I really come to the conclusion that this man, C.V. Wood, simply wanted to, he was into psychic things, okay? He was into extraordinary phenomena. He wanted to test a hypothesis with physical place. And Disneyland was made in a bowl, okay, 160 acres of citrus property. They bought, the Disney's bought, and Disneyland is shaped kind of like a, tri- a triangle with the apex, the point pointing to the south, and the corners rounded, okay, kind of like that. And it's dug into a bowl, okay? So the train that goes around the park is actually up on a berm. So Disneyland is a bowl. Now, the idea from my perspective that I present in the book is that where the carousel used to sit, it spins constantly throughout the day. That lifts, it draws the energy up from that intersection, you know, of those three telluric currents, okay, the triple energy. It draws it up and the rotation also distributes that energy throughout the park. Now, because the park is in a bowl, the energy spreads through the park and then comes up the sides of the bowl 
but then flows back down into itself. So it stays in the park. And I go into this in depth in the book, but I, I think that that's by design. Wow. If we're right about this energy being drawn up from a rotating device, I think that's what CV Wood designed. And when they moved the carousel, in my opinion, if I'm right about it being a device, they disengaged this device. So it no longer works. And so there you have it. There's a long way around the barn to answer your question. That's the kind of answers we love on this show. And wow, I mean, such a, a, a figment of the American experience, this place that has left such an impact on so many families. And there's this magic, literal magic going on, you know, by other definitions, there's science involved, but to the astute observers, it's magic, you know, and, and yeah. the way you describe it, it's kind of like a bubble that encapsulates Disneyland. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating considering how carousels are sort of just, again, a figment, even the, the Ferris wheel is a sort of similar idea of, of mm -hmm. rotation, but the carousel is is a big part of the American experience. Not too far away from me, there's a, a place called Savin Rock where they used to have what they called the, the white cities back in the day when they were doing mm -hmm. the world's fairs and whatnot. Yeah. And there's a whole museum dedicated to the beautiful carousels that they had running right. at one point in time. But Tesla's Wardenclyffe Tower, which actually is is if it was still standing today, might be observable from the beach nearest to me, mm -hmm. worked in a similar way. It was sort of spinning. There was a spinning aspect to it. It plunged mm -hmm. into the depths of the, the ground and was radiating this energy that Tesla purported could be maybe induced from places that were very far away from this tower. You could connect to this tower wirelessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it's rotation is very much involved in things like this. And of course, Vimana's Mercury Vortex engine. Now people will point out to me, they'll say, but Walter, there are, there, there's tunnels underneath the, the ground level at Disneyland. So it's kind of like there's a hollow area under there and it's like where employees move. Well, you have to understand the way this particular energy works. It doesn't matter. It, it won't be obstructed by what we put there. The energy is going to be there. The spinning device, such as the carousel, is still going to, the energy is going to attract to that spin, okay? And then once the spinning device captures that energy, then it can distribute it, you know, in, in its own way. But just because there's employee tunnels and it, it, there could just be a, a storage closet underneath there, it's not going to affect how this works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. It, it And that was the sort of a, a known fact of how, you know, telluric currents are carrying energy through the ground. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm glad you, you make the point that it's not obstructed even by things that we build in between, because mm -hmm. once we build it there, it's a part of that strata that the energy yeah. is flowing through. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating yeah. stuff for me. You know, the synchronicity really kicked off while I was reading your book, Latitude 33. Contemporary to that, I had an interview with a, a guest who described living in Woodstock, New York. And she told us that 
nowhere else that she had lived other than Sonoma or wherever the vortexes are in Arizona, not Sonoma. Mm -hmm. But but either way, she said there's a vortex in New York at Woodstock. So I said Sedona, I think you were talking about Sedona, Arizona. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I said, that's only an hour or so away. Let's drive over to this vortex. My girlfriend Mm -hmm. and I, we get in the car, we drive over to Woodstock, New York, and we get to this metaphysical bookstore, as you say, (laughs) you know, always looking for that sort of thing. And this Mm -hmm. bookstore, you know, is a rare treat because it's only the types of books we like. And I found a book that described a ley line running right through a place that I'm so familiar with, my home state. And I had never heard mention of this anywhere else. It's a a line that author Glenn Kreisberg calls the Hammonasset line. And it goes from Montauk at Long Island through the Great Lakes. So it crosses through Connecticut, through New York. And all along this line, there are several stone structures that you know, some archaeologists say have been here for a very long time. Others say they were possibly built by Native Americans, and some say they were built by colonists. And, you know, there's a kind of a debate, and it's also one of these subjects that's really on the fringes of anthropology and archaeology. But it was really fascinating to have this kind of parallel experience of synchronicity involving ley lines and your book served as a kind of primer in this chain of events or chain of books that my girlfriend and I have found that led us on this kind of really amazing discovery. I found this this subject just so fascinating. It's one of these topics that uh, you don't see a lot of authors taking a serious whack at. I, I picked up handprint the handprint of Atlas by your friend Mm. Sesh. And for folks who haven't come across this yet, it is just an incredible book. And I, I can understand, you know, why you would choose him to, to help write these books because he's very insightful and has this kind of really analogous way of looking at things and comparing, you know, sort of cross subjects and, Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. just one of these areas in American history that I think a lot of people don't appreciate. And Aleister Crowley, you write, found his way over to both your neck of the woods over there in California, and he also had some interest in this place that crosses on the ley line I just described at Montauk. Now, he comes up and plays a, a larger role in your next book, Empire of the Wheel, but when did he come into the research? Were you surprised at all to have the beast rear his rear his bald head in, into the picture? I mean, he is a sort of catch-all for people who, who, who think of the occult. They usually think of him first. Well, he came into it for, for two reasons. Two things led me to, to him. And of course, that led to Rick Spence helping me write the book. For the first two years that I researched this, I did not intend to write a book. Honestly, I, it was like an obsessive quest. It was the biggest, you know, I had spent some years as a federal agent. So, you know, I'd been a criminal investigator. I consider the empire of the wheel case, the biggest case of my life. And so it was, it was like a personal quest. And the only reason I decided to write a book was that I was supposed to go to Afghanistan for a year as a counterterrorism consultant. And 
the way the job fell through just about nine days before I was supposed to leave, the way the job fell through was odd. It made no sense whatsoever. And I, I was not happy about it because I was going to make really good money, only half of which, you know, was taxable and all this. And so I was disappointed because I was looking forward to it. And a couple of months later, something happened in Afghanistan that got my attention because I may actually have been there when it happened and been killed in the incident or you know, it, I realized, wait a minute, had I gone to Afghanistan, I might not have come back. And so I thought, okay, that might explain why the reason the job didn't work out was so weird. That yeah. might be why it didn't work out because I'm <laughs> supposed to stay here. So I decided by this time, it was early 2010. I decided I'm supposed to stay here. Yeah. And I'm supposed to dig further into this. And I thought, okay, maybe I'm supposed to write about it because my Disneyland book had been out, but I was still looking at myself as, as a, as a fiction writer. Okay. And so I started, I, I just dove deeper into it. And because of the year that the, the weird events that kicked off empire, the wheel, because of the year 1915, I started looking at, well, okay, what happened in 1915? Well, naturally, one of the things in May was the sinking of the Lusitania. And Aleister Crowley is in the milieu when they're discussing the, the espionage connection to the whole sinking of the Lusitania. What was going on with the spies over in Britain, over here in, in the States? And there's Crowley in the middle of it. So I find this book. Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley's, you know, it's it's essentially about Aleister Crowley's very curious and interesting tour of the U.S. in 1915. And it's written by Richard B. Spence. So I contact Rick and, you know, tell him I'm working on something that might be connected to this. And he's giving me so much great information, you know, every other day that finally, after a few months of this, I said, why don't you work on this book with me? And he, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So that's how Rick came to the project. But the other thing that really led to curiosity about Crowley in the Empire of the Will Mystery was in reading Rick's book, I'm learning about this tour he did of the U.S. And he ultimately comes through Southern California and goes through Arizona and then continues back east to Washington. And when he passes through Southern California, he pat, he, it's during the time of this mystery that I'm investigating, specifically November 1915. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm curious about this for two reasons. Number one, one of the players in the Empire of the Will mystery was a gentleman named Walter Franklin Prince, Dr. Walter Franklin Prince, and he was an Episcopal minister, reverend. And I had already learned that Walter Franklin Prince in 1915, was here in San Bernardino, California, where I'm at, where the mystery takes place, this Empire of the Wheel mystery that I've written about. And you see, what's interesting about that is I was already familiar with Prince as being the investigative partner with Harry Houdini in the investigation into fraud in spiritualism in the 1920s. The investigation which 
many, I'm one of them, believe led to the murder of Harry Houdini. Well, I had already also learned that there was the presence of the first spiritualist temple here in San, in California, here in San Bernardino. So I had spiritualists. I had Walter Franklin Prince. Okay. And then I learned that Harry Houdini was in Southern California during this time. He had been performing in LA. And when I looked at Crowley's route that he took through the United States, the way he went through the Great Lakes cities, came down, you know, from the Pacific Northwest through San Francisco down into, you know, then San Diego on up. He had taken virtually the same route that Houdini had taken in 1915. It was as if, and Sesheri believes this is so, it was as if Crowley was shadowing Houdini. So, you know, all this leading to, there's got to be, I, I, I wonder if Crowley was aware of the weird things. Basically, when I say weird things, I think these seven mysterious deaths that happened between August and December of 1915, I think they were murder, mm. okay? And so I'm wondering, what might Crowley have known about this? You know, the spiritualists, a lot of them are into some dark things back then. You know, what? You know, we got Houdini and Prince in the mix. What the heck is going on here, right? So ultimately... I went to the archivist, the local archivist of the Santa Fe Railroad, and I was able to prove that in November of 1915, at the heart of when all this weird stuff was happening that I write about in Empire of the Wheel, Aleister Crowley passed through San Bernardino. He had to have been here because due to the civil war going on just south of the border back then, the United States was not in World War I, remember, due to the civil war going on in Mexico, all rail, passenger rail trains, okay, all passengers traveling by rail is what I'm trying to say, between the West Coast, Southern California and the East Coast, they all had to be diverted north. They would not have passenger trains going on the very most Southern route by the border because of all the military actions going on down there. So Crowley at this time had been in San Diego and he had to go east. So the Santa Fe Railroad archivist was able to prove, you know, with me that Crowley came through San Bernardino. Now, I still don't know how long he was here, it, but it couldn't have been more than an overnight stay based on where he was known to have been subsequent to that. It could have just been a couple of hours for him to just jump on another train, but it, it could have been an overnighter. If he was here overnight, who would he have met with? Now, Sesheri and others immediately assumed that Crowley must have had a hand in what I believe are these murders because I think they're occult motivated. They're steeped in occult themes. But being the criminal investigator, you have to go on evidence, right? And bottom line is the evidence not only did not point to what I think was a convincing Crowley hand in these, these what I think are murders, it was quite the opposite. It is my opinion that Crowley would have been vehemently opposed anything like I suspect and would have been appalled at what was done because three of the victims were children. A, a two-year-old and four-year-old brother and sister and a 14-year-old girl. And they were among the four victims poisoned. The two small children were given poison candy. The 14-year-old girl was given a poison orange piece of fruit. 
this would have Crowley, you know, there are those people who believe that Crowley sacrificed babies. And I, I just smack my head because I'm like, you've never really studied Aleister Crowley, have you? Aleister Crowley was a guy who, you know, he enjoyed his bad press because it made him look more colorful and he certainly didn't discourage it. But I think he paid for it in the continued hit he takes in his reputation. Now, here's what's interesting. If you've read the novel Moonchild that Crowley published in 19, I think, 20 or 21, something like that. He finished it, I think, in 1919. Anyway, it was written in the 18 months after he passed through San Bernardino. So as I say in the book, I think Crowley, through the grapevine of the occult world, I think he was aware that something was going on here. And I think he was aware that it was bad. I do not think he would have had anything to do with it. But I don't know yet how much he would have known. I think the biggest clues, the best clues as to how much he knew about this is in the novel Moonchild. Because the novel's about two factions of occult groups. One is kind of like white magic. The other one's black magic. They're opposed to each other. And I, I think he based a big part of Moonchild on what he saw and learned about what was going on in San Bernardino in 1915. You know, some of it, a lot, some of it's based on people and factions and events that were taking place between cult groups in Europe. But I think a fair amount of it was inspired by what went on here in San Bernardino in 1915. So I, I came away, I went into it with the typical you know, what little I knew about Aleister Crowley. Oh, he was a bad guy. Oh, he did all this stuff. And I came away with a complete opposite opinion. Mm. I, I really, I, I don't demonize him. I think he's grossly misunderstood by a lot of superstitious and superstitiously religious people. And, you know, it's unfortunate that that is the case. And it's even with people who don't have that bias in other areas. I'm a testament to that. If you have the time, I encourage you to go listen to my appearance on a show that I love to give them credit. But Tinfoil Hat, I went on there and tried to give a, a fair and just account of Crowley's strange and weird life. And I ended up in a sort of an argument where it felt like I was arguing that he was a good guy. And really, I think if you look at any any person in, in history, there's going to be flaws. There's going to be ups and downs. He was not a perfect right. person. and Yeah, he, he was flawed like any other human. Right. He had his freaky side. <laughs> right. I, I do not think Aleister Crowley is guilty of the evil things that the churchianity people level right. at him. Quite frankly, that's who it is, the right. churchianity folks. But and it, it's all out of ignorance. In you know. this milieu, you know, to his credit, what he really was good at was hiding his true motives with this veil yeah. of, you know, spectacle. And, right. you know, that's what really made him embrace the, the evil because, or, or the image of evil, because, mm -hmm. you know, he was working, what, with MI6, potentially mm -hmm. maybe other occult interests or, you know, elite interests, people at the time who had money and sway with a, an individual like himself who could go and fulfill a mission and make everybody think that he was just in town to throw some tarot cards on the ground and, yeah. you know, hold a party, right? So yeah. I think that, that Crowley did have a, a really potent ability as an asset to sort of kind of leave 
people confused as to why he was ever anywhere. I think with the work of like, you know, Rick Spence, we've kind of seen that his life and his actions can be made sense of through that espionage lens. And even Houdini, I mean, the spiritualists at that time were operating with the mafia because of the money they could make from some mm -hmm. of these, you know, sure. scams, because not all of the spiritualists right. were honest people. Oh, and, heck no. Yeah. There were a lot of crooks and criminals. And by the 1920s, they had their hooks into pretty high-level politicians, the president mm -hmm. of the United States, wow. uh, congressmen. And so when they threatened Houdini in 1926, you know, it was because he was threatening their serious livelihood. Now, I do think that what happened in San Bernardino 1915 was what sparked initially was the spark that set Houdini and Prince against the spiritualists in the following decade. I really do, because I see evidence that spiritualists, corrupt spiritualists, and yes, with the capital S, the official spiritualists, were involved in these murders. And I, I think, oh, oh, and by the way, after the the sixth and seventh, the last two victims that died on the second and the ninth, I think, of December, Prince, Walter Franklin Prince, before that month was out, he and his wife packed up their belongings and left, walked away from the church. And he went to Boston, where he went to work for the the American Psychical Research Society, which he eventually took over in the 1920s and was running, was the head of it during the legendary investigation against the corrupt spiritualists. And I do think that what happened here in San Bernardino is what set he and Houdini off on this crusade against the spiritualists, the corrupt ones. Right. Because they... They were criminals, the ones he was going at, they were going after, and they were willing to, uh, you know, they were willing to kill to protect their thing. Yeah, it is. They told him, they told him, Madam, what's her name? It's in the book and, and it's in this book by Kalish and Sloman about Houdini, which I recommend to everyone, the secret superhero, America's first superhero or something. Right. But, yeah. Um, I've seen that book. Yes. Yeah. It's an excellent book, but she warned him in the summer of 1926 outside Congress chambers, the Senate chamber, she said to him, and there were witnesses, she goes, Mr. Houdini, by November, you won't be here. And everyone, you know, that knows the story knows he died, what, the night before Halloween or something like that? Yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm convinced, I, I, I'm convinced by the case and the argument that the spiritualist had him murdered. Yeah. Now, Given the rapid pace at which these deaths occurred, you have seven victims all in a pretty short span of time. And for the most part, all of them went uninvestigated because it was presumed each time that there were sort of benign causes of death or accidental causes of death to blame. So that maybe so the resources that could have been put, right? I mean, you're shaking your head. I'm guessing there's some exceptions to what I'm I saying. I think they were investigated. Mm. I think you can glean that much from the newspaper reports, which some of them are atrocious with getting certain <laughs> facts and details wrong. Well, oh, gee, the press getting something wrong. <laughs> but here's the thing. I still glean that it was very much investigated. Mm. But yeah, the, the, the murders, in my opinion, these murders were committed in such a way. Yeah, the, you had you had two adult males that were labeled suicide, and for all the world, they they were staged as suicides, certainly. And then you had the woman who's at the center of all this, the mysterious Cora Stanton. She was 
quickly labeled a suicide. Okay. You had the other adult male who dies in a boating accident. Now, now the first guy who was supposed to be a suicide, he's sometime in August, 1915. The guy who allegedly dies in a boating accident in a lake that's not there anymore. It's all dried up. He dies in October. Okay. Of that year. And then in November, you have the two little children who died just days ahead of the Cora Stanton woman being fished out of a a lake downtown at the park downtown. And then in, in December, just, uh, well, just a couple of weeks after the Cora Stanton woman, you have the 14 year old girl who eats the poison orange and dies. And then you have the final victim, the other adult male who, you know, it looks like it was a suicide, like he shot himself in the head, but there's two other people in the house when it happens. And they, you know, we're told they don't even discover anything's wrong till the next day. Yeah. So it's, you know, and that gun that he allegedly shot himself with was a gun that had somehow been taken out of, oh, was it the sheriff's? I think it was the sheriff's office or the DA's office. And it had been used reportedly in a previous suicide. So, you know, there's just so much weirdness going on. And you're right. A lot of these deaths are just within days of each other. and. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know that there's an overtone having to do with Hecate. Obviously, Hecate has to do with the wheel. And this is something that I'm not sure how familiar you may be with because it's something that occurred to me a few weeks ago when I first reached out to you. I had a Mm -hmm. guest on, a gentleman who's down there in Florida, and he's doing a lot of interesting research with etymology and trying to piece together this sort of old world history. And one of the things that he told me was that oranges and apples were sort of synonymous at one point in time as far as language is concerned, that maybe Mm -hmm. the words got mixed up. So I'm curious, you know, what are some of the occult interpretations of these deaths? Because the oranges themselves may be a hint at this, you know, Garden of Eden fruit that, you know, poisons you if you eat it, right? Right. There's the oranges, there's apples, there's the fig at one point. Pomegranates. Pomegranates are associated with this too. And Mm -hmm. and even pomegranates are specifically connected to Hecate through Persephone. Because if you recall, when she is trapped in the underworld, it's because Jupiter, I guess, right? Or Pluto, it's, or Hephaestos in the Greek, I guess, you know, the the underworld god that's, that's abducted her, he tricks her into eating the three pomegranate seeds. Okay. And then she's stuck in the underworld and her mother beseeches Hecate to please find Persephone and bring her home. And that's where we get Hecate going into the underworld with the two torches. So what you got to do is step out. It's not just the specifically a pomegranate orange or orange or an apple. It's the, you know, it's also includes grapes. It's the viticulture, it's agriculture. It, it has to do with agriculture in general and the fruit is, you know, with all its different symbology, like the fruit of your labors, you know, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree when you're talking about genealogical things and, and on and so forth. The, the, it's, it's really just generic, a, what a fruit stands for in mythological symbology. And so all, you know, apples, oranges, or whatever, of course, from tradition to tradition, it's going to be an orange in this one, an apple in that one, a fig in the other, and then a pomegranate. 
the, the idea you're supposed to take away from that is the fruit of the agriculture. And look how much magical thinking is involved with agriculture. You know, there's the, the time to plant the seeds. There's the time that, you know, the seed is in the ground. And then, you know, the very myth of Persephone, many people say is nothing more than symbolism for, you know, the, the seasons and how we plant it grows, we harvest, and then we start the process over again, right? And then that's been applied to resonating with, you know, human life, you know, and and to extend it further, reincarnation, right? Some people use this to argue. They look at nature and they go, look how a tree goes dormant, right? In the winter and then comes spring, it, you know, releases new buds and then it flourishes again. Well, what if, what if human beings in some way did the same thing? You know, in the winter of our lives, we die ideally, and then we are reborn, right? In, in another body. So all of this is in there. And I look at this symbology of the fruit in this case, in San Bernardino and in Florida, the reason you're going to find citrus is because at one point, even before Florida was a big deal with citrus, this area that I'm in, the, the Inland Empire of Southern California, the greater San Bernardino Valley, was once the citrus capital of the United States. Okay, so citrus and agriculture and viticulture and all the magic and symbology and you know stuff going on in the human head, be it the, the subconscious, the psyche, or in the conscious, that's all in the mix. Now, a practical reality is if you grew up here in the Inland Empire and the San Bernardino Valley in the era when I, you know, there used to be a lot more orange groves here than there, there are now. And part of the experience of living here was, you know, and the farmers didn't care, you know, you're walking home from school or you're out walking in the park or whatever, there was orange trees all around. People would just, you know, you just go pick an orange and eat it. Nobody cared. And so this is what it appeared that this girl, the 14 year old, her name was Orta Hedges, lived in Redlands. You know, nobody would have thought of her having picked an orange and peeled it and ate it, you know. But the interesting thing was this, this was a green orange. Now, in my research, I didn't see anything where green oranges would kill anyone, would be poisonous. However, when the orange that she was eating that no one else had been eating in the family because no one else turned up even sick when it was analyzed by a lab they were they were able to identify that there was indeed a toxin injected into the orange and but they couldn't identify it specifically now people say well if they know there's a toxin they have to know what it is not necessarily back then in 1915 that era poisoning murder by poison was hugely popular you know, as, as murder went. And back then they were able to identify if there was a toxin, but it didn't necessarily mean they could readily identify the sources of those toxins. Now here's what's interesting. The month before that, when the two little children were given the poison candy, same result. The lab identified that there was a substance, that it was toxic, but they didn't know the source of it. They couldn't identify exactly what it was. So you had two children given this poison candy with a then unknown toxin. And then a girl, you know, a month later, given an orange that eliminated that. And the, I, I was able to identify the kind of pesticides they would have used back then. And this was not, and they were aware of that. They, they knew the pesticides used. So obviously it wasn't an unknown toxin. So it wasn't any 
kind of pesticide that they would have used that killed her. It was very likely the the same stuff that was on the candy for the children. So food, fruit, candy. I also go into the book about the symbology of the children getting the candy at the time of year. There's an association to ancient rites, okay? And and one of these rites had to do with the tradition where this, I, I can't remember if it was a saint or this figure, the tradition was to hand out sweets to the children and such. And this is essentially what was done to these children. They were, they were given something by a stranger. The parents were cleared, okay? And they never were able to identify who would have given these children this candy or the girl, the orange. So, uh, you know, all of this, when you're talking about the deadly fruit, well, that's symbolic of Persephone, right? Like I said, well, Orta Hedges, a 14-year-old girl, you know, innocent girl, and she goes to her death, a.k.a. the underworld, after eating the poison fruit. Well, there's Persephone right there for you. And, you know, the, the children, the, the same thing. So it, 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 there's all this... And then when you get the dates together with the, with the, you know, the occult ancient history with the mythology and such, it just all builds up to the point where something clearly was going on here that was fishy in, in regard to occult symbology and particularly, you know, the, the Hecate thread through all of this. Mm. Yeah. Oh, the 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 time of the month in November when the Cora Stanton woman, for example, when she would have died, it was once the veneration day for um, Hecate, specifically for St. Catherine of Alexandria. The Catholic St. Catherine of Alexandria never existed. She was a she was syncretized from the biography of Hypatia of Alexandria, a very real woman who lived in history. And they, they made up this identity of the St. Catherine of Alexandria out of whole cloth, borrowed from Hypatia's biography. And this was to cover Hecate worship that, you know, that in the ancient days that they knew they couldn't squash. The church, the early church knew we're not going to stop these people venerating Hecate. Let's at least put our veneer, our label on Hecate and, and Catholicize it. And the Catholic Church admits this. It's in the New Catholic Encyclopedia. Rick and I present it in the book that there is there has never been any such thing in real life as St. Catherine of Alexandria. She is Hecate. Her symbol is the wheel. Hecate's symbol is the wheel. All, all those that she watches out for, whom she's the patron saint for, are the same who Hecate looked out for. So she's Hecate, the thinly veiled Hecate. So this... This makes it all the more interesting when you look at all the symbology and the, the occult mysticism surrounding all these deaths. What is going on? Why Hecate? And I present my ideas why in the book. Some of it's obvious. Hecate is the goddess who, according to the tradition, when you die and you go to enter into the underworld, the land of the dead, Hecate is who you meet standing at the gate. And she you know, admits you into the underworld. So Hecate represents something or someone who we encounter, you know, at or right after the point of our death. Wow. Wow. And what a, what a, an icon or a deity for people who live right on the precipice of, 
you know, the desert, right? This yep. area known as Death Valley, not too far from the whole mix. And, you know, there were so many interesting groups of people. I was just earlier today talking to author Ronnie Pontiac yeah. about this book that he wrote recently called American Metaphysical Religion. And he talks about a bunch of different you know, groups of metaphysical oriented people throughout American history. Now, you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier that Crowley, after spending his time in California, wrote this book that may have been sort of veiled what he saw in California, these groups of, you know, secret societies or cults, ritual groups working against each other. And maybe these seven victims were caught in the crossfire or used as sort of sacrifices to some, you know, end. Now, have you since writing these books thought or, or come across maybe what groups may have been? I mean, the spiritualists, right, is, is, a, is sort of a vague group of um, people, right? I, are, is there a proper... Really. Not not really. Spiritualists, that's why I say with a capital S, they mm. they were they were a thing. Right. They had, you know, whenever you see back then spiritualist temples, it was like it was like we have, you know, Catholics, Roman Catholics, uh, you know, like any other denomination. Yeah, it, it it was it was the main label denomination of people who were into you know, what, what we label new age, but it was organized. It was specific. Mm. Okay. Now they might each have had their little differences, but no, it, it, it was a thing. And it looks to me like it was, you know, special interest cells with it. Now we're not talking about people would say, you know, their, their grandma would, you know, pull out the, they'd get out the card table and they would do seances or they'd get the talking board out. And it was a parlor game, so to speak. We're not talking about people who, you know, were dabbling this stuff on that level. We're talking about the, the really dedicated spiritualists who, who established these temples, who were networking with each other and were, were pursuing influence money. Mm. And, and they were, they were honestly deeply into these concepts. Right. Well, and it was a thing. And I, I guess I misspoke, but, I, you know, referencing Ronnie's book, my intention was to bring up the Rosicrucians that were possibly involved in California as early as when the first missionaries came over. This is something that he mm -hmm. says there's slim evidence for, but it's, you know, included in this whole milieu. Now, Cora Stanton, she is somebody who kind of comes out of nowhere. The note that's ascribed to her says she's from El Paso, Texas. And, yeah. you know, given what the Empire of the Wheel 2 is about, there's this sort of German element that comes into the fresh. Oh, sure. And, sure. And, and don't forget that El Paso is right there on the Ornada del Muerto mm. through the, the path, you know, the, 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 the journey of the dead, the path right. of the journey of the dead which, you know, deep underworld and such connections. Absolutely. It's, yeah, you talk about the missionaries. I'm assuming you're referring to the Mormon missionaries that came to San Bernardino and founded that the, the, the first white settlers, as they call them, in San Bernardino was a Mormon colony. Mm. And the people who were among the founders of the spiritualist temple I'm referring to were with this Mormon group. Now, 
some of them were Mormons, some of them were not. The main guy was not a Mormon, but they came here, they established San Bernardino, and they broke off from the Mormon colony and really got into this, the, the establishing their spiritualist group right off the bat. They were reputed to be summoning entities, disembodied entities, spirits, demons, what have you, devils out here in the hills by what is now Cal State San Bernardino in a place called Devil's Canyon. I published a book. I've, I've done a classic reprint of the, the, the spiritual spiritualist autobiography of this man I'm talking about. His name was John Brown. He's not the John Brown of Civil War history. He's a different John Brown. And he, from the time he was six years old, he claimed that these spirits, these beings, the entities came to him. And this book for all the world reads like a book about demonic possession once you you get into it. And it, it, yeah, I just found it to be a fascinating book, particularly, the, you know, his family, the Brown family became a prominent family here in San Bernardino. And, and he was one of the original founders of the first spiritualist temple in the state of California, which was also known as the first spiritualist temple in San Bernardino. That's what it was called. And, and their group was the, the Brotherhood of Kindred Manifestations. That was what they called themselves. And it's... You know, it's wild. The uh, their influence on on the on San Bernardino is one of the reasons why Brigham Young recalled the Mormon colony. You know, in that recall in the 19th century, they they called them back from San Bernardino. You know, come back to Salt Lake. And Brigham Young's opinion of San Bernardino was that hell ruled here. That's what he was quoted as saying. Wow. And and think about that. Think about coming from. The Mormon leadership, when you consider Joseph Smith was quite the occultist himself, quite the dabbler in arcane magic and such, and all that goes with its influence on Mormonism, for those guys to get spooked <laughs> about what these spiritualists were doing, that tells you, you know, how far, as near as I can tell, you know, it looks like somebody within the spiritualist temple some group or cabal or clique within the spiritualist temple was seriously dedicated to some dark bastardized version of the Eleusinian mystery rites. Mm. And it's still, but it does involve because of what was going on in California with world war one, you had the German Hindu conspiracy, which back then was all over the papers. So you had in 1915 in Southern California, particularly San Bernardino, you had, German and British spies, because remember, Germany and England were at war at that time in Europe, but India was beginning to show its independence. Well, Germany wanted to keep England busy on two war fronts, right? So Germany was making sure that India, the freedom fighters in India, were getting weapons, munitions, and arms. So they were smuggling munitions and arms, rifles and such, up through, looks like, the Gulf of Mexico, getting them on trains in Texas and bringing them by rail to California onto San Diego, where, and they were eventually caught, you know, this was uncovered, and they they would smuggle them onto ships that would then sail across the Pacific and then go into, you know, towards Indonesia, Southwest Asia, and, and, and go into India and deliver these weapons. And so this was going on. 
Now, in Southern California, San Bernardino was the railroad hub. So if you're smuggling weapons through Texas, El Paso being one of the stations that you bring them up from Mexico, right? Get them on the train and you're going to bring it into Southern California to go to San Diego. Guess what? You have to go through the massive rail yard that was here and still is in San Bernardino. So you had German spies present. You had British spies present. Plus, you're going to have spies from India making sure their shipments coming through. You're going to have British spies looking for German spies, you know, suspecting all you get the idea. So you had that, the World War I intrigues going on. And as you know, in the book, and, and as Rick Spence will tell you, among these German spies were notorious occultists. So how, what was the German hand in all this weird occult mystery going on? And if you've read the second book, you know what I suspect of Cora Stanton, you know, what was her role involved with working against these Germans as an intelligence agent and on and so forth. And, and the next yeah. thing you know, as you're listening to me and thinking about all these things, you're sucked into the empire of the wind mystery. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I am indeed. And I've tried to find again, analogy and make connections to the stuff I'm looking at closest to me. And Yale University had at one point its own version of this sort of German invasion in the form of skull and bones. And, you know, the inspiration that Alfonso Taft and William Huntington Russell brought with them after their summer in Berlin, you know, I think mm -hmm. what you just said earlier, I know you weren't directly speaking to skull and bones, but the, the Lucinian mystery, the bastardized version of it, Seems like that may be what's being practiced at Skull and Bones based on some of the writings Chris sure. Milligan and Anthony Sutton have put together. But yeah, it's it's really fascinating to consider the aspect of this breakaway civilization and how they come into the fray. Is Cora Stanton at all related to this gentleman with the same last name that turns up associated with Nimza? I might be mistaken, but I, I thought there was a another person with the last name Stanton who comes up. You, in you the... might be you you might be confusing it with Wilson. Okay, Wilson is the the mystery family mystery mm. name that is connected to the the Sonora Aero Club but also turns up in the airship mystery of the 1890s. And they are traced to to Iowa, the state of Iowa. Now, in the Cora Stanton, the alleged information, she was connected with Iowa, specifically Mason City. And so there you have a potential Wilson connection to that. It, it, it is a lot of circumstantial evidence. But I remind people, movies and TV have done a gross disservice to the concept of circumstantial evidence. So people say, oh, you can't be convicted at all on circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence doesn't mean anything. Look, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Many a guilty criminal was, it was, it, their guilt was discovered and proven through pulling the threads of circumstances. Circumstances matter, okay? You got a lot of guys, you know, you have criminals who, because an examination of the suspicious circumstances, they ultimately confessed because they realized, oh, shoot, they got me. They know. It's just a matter of time before they find, you know, the, the trace evidence or the specific thing that will really, you know, be the smoking gun. 
So circumstances matter. They are indeed pointers. Now, yes, it's true that in, in, in not every case, circumstances mean guilt, but they're a much better legitimate indicator and in some cases provide the smoking gun than people realize because the average people just watch movies and TV and, and believe that, you know, everything said in movies and TV must be accurate. Real? No, 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 that's, that's not the case at all. So yes, there is circumstantial evidence around a lot of this, but boy, it, it really results in if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, right? And then it's probably going to be a duck. And the deeper you look into this, some people, you know, the phrase is, well, the, the deeper you look, the more you look, the more you're going to see. Well, it's, it's more like this. The deeper you look at this, the more you actually find. You know, there's a distinction. It's not just in your head. It just piles up. And the more you find, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, Rick Spence, he told me this and he said this in interviews. When we first met and we started working on this together, he is, he's told other people in me, he said, you know, I really didn't put much stock in the concept of synchronicity. Was, by the time I was done working on this book with Walter, I became a believer in synchronicity. He experienced it himself. I, I, I tell everybody who jumps into this with me, I say, now, you might scoff, you might brush it off, but before your experience with this is over, you're going to know what I mean. You're, you're going to experience this and you are going to one way or another encounter or meet Hecate. And just like with Alistair Crowley, I went into all this. My impression of Hecate was the standard. She's the dark, evil demon goddess of the witches. And, and wow, my opinion it, it, it ended up that couldn't be farther from the truth. I see Hecate as opposite and, but the same people that want to knee jerk condemn Crowley. Oh my God, you should see how they react when I talk about Hecate in positive or even glowing terms. And um, it's just the result of taking a real honest look and deep dive on something rather than just taking the superstitious, easy, lazy, you know, you know, just trust me, bro approach, you know, <laughs> on it. So well said. Yeah, I, I believe that people can keep a more open mind, especially in this community. You know, a lot of people think that they've found the truth. Meanwhile, they, you know, like, like you said, couldn't be farther from it. And and I think a lot of that type of thinking tends to bring exactly what they're attracting into their life. So they, yeah. they go about thinking everything's demonic. Well, hey, you yeah. might end up in a, a hell of your own creation, but just know that yeah. there was an alternative and that was seeing the bright side of things. And yeah, I, I look at the, the experience of Hecate, for example, and some of these other things is like electricity. Electricity properly handled does wonderful things. It, it's how we have this world we live in. Right. Electricity can also be deadly. You mishandle it and it has no mercy. You, you're going to die and you're going to die painfully and in horrible ways. And, and you have to handle these, these where you interpret these beings as forces, natural forces. And some people do and they think it ends there. I happen to see Hecate is a being with a personality and an intellect and a consciousness who, but that's my personal view. It, it's in how you deal with, you know, 
your perception and how you deal with your interaction and to what extent you take your interaction as to how dangerous or how beneficial that interaction is going to be. Absolutely. Now we're getting on to about 80 minutes in, so I want to respect your time and ask you one last question. Uh, Mm, Sure. When it comes to the empire, the wheel, uh, Mm -hmm. the first one reads a lot like a detective you know, work, you know, it's very about this case and you're sort of enveloped in the characters and the time Mm -hmm. and the place. And then out of seemingly nowhere to folks who may not have read the second book, this whole other aspect comes into the fray, this flying, you know, breakaway civilization, these intrepid Germans who made all this money in the railroad company and and possibly, you know, revolutionized a form of transportation that's now seemingly lost to at least, you know, what's attainable to the average person, right? right? I mean, you can't go out and buy a hot air balloon unless you're Goodyear, right? And they're a tire company, go figure. So how did they float into the picture exactly? Well, yeah, floating's a good word. Here's what was weird. What haunted me, nagged me, not haunted me. I don't want everything to be like ghosts, but it nagged me. In the first book, there was a young gentleman 24 years old at the time, named Frank Rosasco. And about 11 days after Cora Stanton's body, the woman that we're told was named Cora Stanton, after her body was found floating in the lake, and, you know, they thought they had put that mystery out. Oh, she's a stranger in town who killed herself. Just nothing to see here, folks. He gets arrested on the train, which is bound for Barstow. And he's having a nervous breakdown. And part of that nervous breakdown is he's seeing the face of a young woman, a woman, and he's freaking out saying that he's being accused of having hurt her. And he's saying he didn't hurt her. He didn't hurt her. And he's holding, he's clutching a woman's purse with, gosh, I can't remember what, with some cash in it. If I'm not, no, no, there's no cash in that one. There was cash in the purse that they subsequently found later that day. You know what? Let's go back because this is even weirder. When the woman is found on the 19th, she's, they, they make a point in the newspaper of saying there was no hat, no, nor, nor purse, lady's purse found. They don't know who she is. Okay, 11 days later, this Frank Rosasco is arrested on the train, clutching a woman's purse, flipping out, have, having a nervous breakdown. Meanwhile... A guy just happens to stumble upon a lady's hat and a lady's purse. The purse has $232 in it and a bottle of of bichloride of mercury tablets when some are missing. And this was the poison that was found in her system, you know, and we're told that she killed herself with. Now, also with this purse in 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 this lady's hat was a suicide note now you got to remember this was found well within the search area that was searched very carefully by police officers the day her body was found so obviously to me and, and rick and others who read it these items were stashed the purse with the cash the the bottle with the poison and the alleged suicide letter okay and But on the same day, this young guy, Frank Rosasco, is being arrested, having a nervous breakdown on the train, and he's got a woman's purse, and I don't think there was any money in this one. So they take him to the county hospital, okay, and put him in the psych ward. 
for all the world, he, there's your crazy guy, right? There's your murderer, right? That's what you would think if you were, you would suspect if you were law enforcement. Well, here's the funny thing. He's released to these unidentified associates who are labeled, who are identified in the newspaper only as friends from Sonora. Here we are in the middle of what appears to be a murder mystery, which the newspapermen and the, the police chief were suspecting foul play. Okay. Despite what the, you know, the official story that, that ultimately came out. And here's this guy under these circumstances. Of course, this is your number one suspect, right? You're not going to just let him go. But no, that's what they did. He was released to the custody of friends from Sonora. So that, and then that was it, right? That was nagging me. Now, Empire of the Wheel 3, the nameless ones, actually started as the second book. But what happened was this. The whole Frank Rosasco thing was nagging me. And I thought, okay, you know, there's Sonora in Mexico. I believe there's Sonora in Texas. I was aware of the Sonora Aero Club, the mysterious group of Germans who were allegedly building flying anti-gravity flying machines, not balloons, anti-gravity flying machines in the 1850s up by Yosemite in Tuolumne County, California. And Sonora was one of the little towns there, and that's the namesake of the club. I was aware of that, but I thought, nah, come on, this is going to be Sonora, Mexico or Sonora, Texas. So I did my diligence research. I researched the Rosasco name with Mexico, found nothing. I researched the Rosasco name with Texas, found nothing. So I thought, okay. So I go up Sonora, California, Tuolumne County, Rosasco and bingo, a big ranching family that is known to this day, the Rosasco family. And sure enough, I do my research and I find out that Frank is one of the sons of, you know, the patriarch up there who, who owned the original ranch. I find a picture of him. I find out that he had attended Berkeley and he was a brilliant student. I even, if you've read, I believe it's the third book. Maybe it's the second book, but I even got a phone interview with a relative of his, a descendant relative of his. And he talked to his mom, who was like around 90 at that time. And she said, oh, yeah, Frank went down to San Bernardino and lost his mind. And so it's a bit. And, and Frank Rosasco, if you've read the book, you know, he spent the remaining 50 something years of his life. Every day, just doing mathematical calculations astronomical observations and he was doing survey of something on the property and he's like right out of a lovecraft book so i'm i'm looking at this and i'm going wait a minute wait 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 a minute we have the presence of german intelligence that that we strongly suspect and and we know was in california and we strongly suspect and have reason to suspect was in san bernardino during this mystery we have this guy who's released to you know, who's from a very wealthy family, right, up in Sonora, California, and he's released into the custody of unidentified associates, friends from Sonora, and we know that German immigrants were running the Sonora Aero Club. What's going on here? What exactly, you know, it, 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 how is how is the, the Rosasco family, who's Italian, Okay, that's an Italian name. And Italian ranchers very specifically had been identified in the Sonora Aero Club lore as providing 
a safe haven for these German Sonora Aero Club flying machine builders to house their flying machines in their barns. So you have an Italian rancher connection to the Sonora Aero Club. And here's this guy who's from one of these Italian rancher families, probably associated with the Sonora Aero Club in the previous century. And then you have German agents, German connection, and on you get the idea. So it just, again, then, as if that's not enough, I start looking at lists of missing persons from 1915, the early 1900s, and I stumble on to a name that I never really thought about being considered a missing person. But the fact is, after 1908, no one knows anything about her. And when I look at her physical description, and I compare it as I do in the book, in the second book, compare it to the physical description of the woman found in the lake, I realize, my God, these have to be the same woman. And this explains, and and it just, as you, you've read the book, it just exploded into this new aspect of what was going on here. And that, those shocking revelations became the second book. I, I had to make that the second book. And yeah, wow. It, 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 as if, and as if the third book doesn't have stuff in it that was going to be the second book that already wasn't wild and potentially nutty in some people's views. So yeah, what started out as a big occult murder mystery because of that thread, friends from Sonora pulling that, that is how the real wild aspects entered into this picture. Yeah, absolutely. And folks listening, if you haven't checked out Walter's work yet, I highly recommend you start with Latitude 33 and make your way through. I don't know if Walter would recommend that because there are so many books that people can pick from. Since we're wrapping up, where can folks follow up with you? Obviously, you have your YouTube channel, the Walter Bosley channel, where you've been mm -hmm. doing live streams weekly and e mm -hmm. even interviews. And yeah. I'm really happy to see that. And yeah, your your book situation, you have your own publishing outfit, right? But your books are yep. now available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon as well, right? Yeah, that's where they're distributed. But I, I primarily, I, I have a micropress publishing label that I started in 2002 to where I was going to pursue my fiction writing. And I didn't start the nonfiction, of course. The first one was written in, in 2007. But Lulu.com, print on demand, that, that's just how I distribute because I'm a small press guy, okay? And But the books are, not all of them are at Amazon. The, the Empire of the Wheel books are there, yes. But I'm in the process of getting my whole catalog available through Amazon. But it's still print on demand. Okay, if you order off Amazon, it's still going to take a couple of weeks to get the book. And I, I like to tell people, you know, the little the little tidbit is that I and any other authors I publish, we get a bigger cut if you go directly to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. But they are at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I just, you know, it, it, I'm getting them out there. Also, I have a website that's lostcontinentlibrary.com and there's walterbosley.com. And those are still kind of, they're growing every day. They're still kind of partially under construction. But the live stream at Walter Bosley channel at YouTube is on Sunday afternoons at three o'clock. Wonderful. Well, right on. This episode should be out next week. So folks tune in this Sunday and Check out the Walter Bosley channel. Recently, I heard word that there might be a Empire of the Wheel 
television show coming yeah. out at some point in the future. So and that has been in that. development and it's real close to some exciting news. I keep, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Wonderful. Well, I'm anticipating that with excitement. I hope the audience is too. Please go support this man. He's done a lot of work. We didn't even get to talk about Napoleon today, so I hope you'll come back on. Absolutely. Uh, Just let me know. We'll we'll make that happen. I'd love to come back and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And this is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So I got to ask you, does your family think you're crazy? I mean, you've taken so many twists and turns in your life from FBI to fiction to nonfiction to Sonora Aero Clubs. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, I was the only boy, you know, in my family. I have two older sisters and I was the youngest child. So I, they were used to my craziness, right? <laughs> Wonderful. Well, you, you know, know, oh, that boy. So, you know, they, yeah, they think I'm nuts but in a good way. Great. Well, you're right at home here and I really appreciate you being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that was our episode with Walter Bosley. Shout out to all the mothers that listen to the show. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, This episode is coming out first on Patreon on Mother's Day. So have special Happy Mother's Day to all the women who are supporting us on the Patreon or on the Rockfin or on the Substack or just through one-time donations or... Like my new friends, Karina and Emily. Happy Mother's Day, Emily. Uh, Shout out to you. You listen to the show with your significant other. And I'm really glad to hear that you guys are spending Mother's Day listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I hope the sticker and the mug made it in time Uh, shout out to your partner who emailed me and set up this shout out shout outs all around happy mother's day emily and uh yeah couldn't think of a better episode to put out on mother's day with walter bosley fascinating character somebody who i have been reading I've been reading his books for a couple years now. I wanted to have him on the show a year ago, and I'm glad I waited uh, because I was able to read more of his work in the meantime. Uh, But I read his first book initially last year, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. And again, I can't think of a better guest to have on for Mother's Day because this is kind of a Mother's Day subject. Uh, It's a family subject at least the the beginning part of the episode is, right? Because Disneyland, happiest place on earth, place where countless families have gone. I went to Disney uh, World uh, on the East Coast when I was a kid. Of course, you know, in this community, Disney uh, 
definitely raises some eyebrows but keep in mind folks you know back in the day uh, the time period that Walter is talking about I don't know if that creep uh, was in charge of Disney yet so you know who knows I'm not sitting here defending Disney we all know that they were in league with Werner von Braun and you know people say oh Disney was uh, you know anti-semitic or what have you maybe connected to some secret societies he certainly was connected to the Stanford Research Institute as we learned today uh, but Walter doesn't seem to think that there was any nefarious uh, intentions there right so then again Walter is a former FBI agent which I know for the more uh, well we'll say skeptical or maybe uh, paranoid uh, in our audience they might take that as a well now I can't trust anything this guy says uh, I personally enjoy Walter's work I enjoy his research uh, I haven't perceived any sort of uh, evidence that would indicate he is spinning propaganda or something like that I, I don't think his job uh, as an FBI agent did anything for his um, you know authorship other than give him a really good uh, sense of how to write a, about a case like because it's a it's a difficult thing I mean I, I for one I'm not really uh, I don't read much true crime but reading Empire of the Wheel one and two, you can tell that Walter's been trained in this sort of uh, this sort of procedure because he's very methodical. Uh, he's very detailed. He takes you through the case several times. He looks at every single angle, and he really doesn't jump to any conclusions. So, uh, typically with propaganda, the the conclusion is you know shoved down your throat. Whereas Walter, you know, he is extremely open-minded uh, sharing all of the things that he's found and letting the listener or the reader uh, maybe draw their own conclusions obviously he has his own opinions but he's again someone who makes a clear distinction between what he's researched what evidence he has and where his hypothesis or where his speculation begins and I for one enjoy speaking to people like Walter you know sometimes when guests are convinced that what they know is the truth it's it's hard to have an open dialogue it's hard to have a sort of conversation that goes in multiple directions uh, with some guests who are very fixed in their beliefs you know we can really only just uh, sort of prompt them to to share whatever their statements may be uh, so it's, this this episode's a little different than some episodes that we've had in that sense, uh, but it, it shouldn't be all that different from a typical My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast because those are the types of guests I aim for. Open-minded, willing to entertain the crazy stuff, willing to get rational, and uh, willing to admit where they don't know, right? That's an important quality to... Uh, to a person, I think, not just researchers or podcasters, but to people, right? We want to be humble and honest and admit when we don't know. Uh, trust me, when I was younger, I liked to pretend 
that I knew what to do, and that left me in a lot of, uh, well, uh, dire circumstances, we'll say. Eh, dire, well, you know, you learn to rely on yourself when you, when you take that. So I say admit, admit when you don't know. It's a lot easier that way. It's a lot easier to go through life uh, honestly, in my opinion. But you do learn pretty quick when you think you know you learn pretty quick that you don't know but uh anyways i'm rambling this is what happens when i do an outro during the daytime uh big shout out to the moms all the moms happy mother's day i hope your families are enjoying the spring wherever you are on this amazing planet this amazing earth uh oh i said planet <laughs> um but i'm trying to find the email right now yes here it is see it's confusing because okay she says my name is karina and my girlfriend's name is emily okay karina i think i i i said a different name originally i hope i didn't but emily okay so this is the email that I got. We absolutely adore you. We are constantly listening to you every day. Your mind has our mind thinking all the time. And we're always coming home from work and saying, did you listen to Mark today? Crying laughy face emoji. You are seriously the bomb. Thank you. Uh, my girlfriend and I have a son together. He is almost two. I want to get her something special for Mother's Day. I want to get her a MFTIC mug from your shop for Mother's Day. I hope you got it. I hope this isn't a spoiler alert, uh, but shout out to you and your lovely family, Emily. Uh, shout out to your partner, Karina. Hopefully it's Karina and not Corinne uh, or any other variation of that name. Um, either way, very kind, sweet message. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe when uh, the boy is old enough, he'll be a podcaster. Who knows? Raise them right, ladies. Raise them right. Uh, I don't know when I'll have kids, but uh, Tara definitely has been pulling my arm in that direction. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, folks. Uh, a lot of changes coming soon. Going to upgrade uh, to a new living space pretty soon. So hopefully there won't be a hiatus in episodes. I haven't done that in two years, uh, but... Either way, yeah, a lot of things changing on the horizon. So we'll see what happens, where Tara and I go next. But uh, until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in. Go support Walter Bosley. He's got a YouTube channel. He's posting stuff every week. Um, support us, please, on the Patreon, on the Rockfin, on the Substack. I'm terrible at this part. I feel like I... Uh, I should be like other podcasts and say it at the beginning, but I wait till the end because I want you guys to, you know, enjoy the experience and be immersed, immersed in it from the get go. Uh, but who knows? Episode 300 is coming up. And I think with episode 300, there might be some changes around here. So uh, all good things, but stay tuned and we'll see you on the flip side, of course. I can't go out without thanking the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit with the Hit Kit. 
holds your joints, your blunts, whatever you're smoking on, right there, safe and sound, with your lighter. Get a hit kit today. Follow them on Instagram at the hit kit. Go to hitkit.us and pick up a hit kit. If your significant other is a stoner, if you have a mother who smokes up, get her a hit kit for Mother's Day. Belated. If you forgot. Uh, I guess it's a little too late to be <laughs> telling people to get hit kits for Mother's Day. But get it. Get your pops one for Father's Day. How's that? Right on. All right. Peace out, everybody. So um, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows. You know, Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes. He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me, Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's. It's a beautiful thing to be alive, motherfuckers. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I think they have so much. It's just about. It's, it's, it's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah. Are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grade or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink When it's a bastard latched to the clank Clang, the money don't mean a damn thing Think, happiness ain't coming from the bank Dang, I'm out here daydreaming The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen uh, And that's cause life is the child And it takes a village to give it the illest style So, if your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village No, you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin'. Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. Feel like I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been some time. Sometimes depression got me flaking like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers. The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured. Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin', yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. I'm a conspiracy boy. Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you?